Network and you are listening to episode 68 of Attention Plus with Arnabri. Before we begin, let me update you about the latest episode of Binge On, where Raj and I, along with a guest, recommend some of our favorite Netflix original series. Whether it's sci-fi, fantasy, western, or comedy, this episode's got you covered. So look for Binge On, that's B-I-N-G-E space O-N, on your podcast player and subscribe. Do it now, uh, unless you're driving. That is. So now let's get our host Arnab. Hey Arnab. Hello. Hello hey Vikram. Arnab, what's a typical New Year celebration for you, and what's an ideal one? Typical New Year celebration, New Year celebration for me is uh, sitting at home, having food, doing exactly what I do every other day, and uh, sometime around twelve o'clock, asking, "Is it already twelve o'clock?" <laughs> and, uh, so that's that's how it usually is. It's it's always been it's always been that way. Would you have it any other way? No, I I would actually, but I've, there were a few times where I actually spent in, in these were all times in my youth. I wouldn't say again the the word youth in in in, in Indian context is is highly overloaded. So I'm still youth in terms of politics, but uh, this is when I was like around. I would say mid twenties. I had like one or two years where I spent New Year's like they show in the like 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 they show on TV. That was just, uh, I think, thrice in my life that I actually went to a place. I had something to drink. I mean, even at home, I have something to drink. But that's like, it's like me sitting in shorts, you know, or, or you know, half half supine on the sofa. Not like that, um, but you know, you know, well dressed and and in, in a moderately nice place. Uh, thrice in my life, three New Years. So back in those uh, back in the days in India, I mean, where you, uh, I assume you would have watched the Doordarshan program with Sharon yeah, yeah, Prabhakar and I, the mandatory <laughs> concerts. Yeah, I, I I wrote about it in my Times of India column. I don't know if you got a chance. Yes, to you did. It. Yes, you did. That's so, what I was so, too. So so that's what I that's what I wrote on that. You know, before I came to the US, um, you know, all my New Years were spent with my parents eating fruit cake. And um, that's that's exactly how. It, and we used to watch the Doordarshan, uh, the Doordarshan yes. program, which was again, again they cut that portion out in the in in the uh, in the in the in the piece that got published. But it was in the larger piece that it was basically anchored and held by people whom we have never heard before and were unlikely to hear of again. Um, one of the one of the standard staples of the New Year's program used to be somebody called Parvati Khan. Are you aware of? Yes, Parvati? absolutely, Parvati Khan. Yeah. So what many people don't know is that Parvati Khan actually used to, uh, and I'm, I would say I'm about ninety percent sure about this, but Parvati Khan used to be, she used to compose jingles for the Congress. So in those days, this is pre 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 social media she had pre blonde dyed hair, if I remember. Um, she, they used to play these songs like there would be a mic and they would like drive around and play, play these songs this was and uh, she would she she was the person who I used to think s- s- used to sing the songs for the congress and she also used to so obviously uh, she would be there for, for in all the new year's programs uh, d- d- during congress so 
<laughs> the good old within quotes good old days the good old okay. days yeah. well, what are we talking about today though so we're going to talk about today on uh, two things we're going to talk about nrc we're going to have to you know again the thing doesn't go away it's still on uh, it's still very much in the headlines so i want to talk a little bit more of nrc for those of you who have uh, who've heard I, i would or hearing this i would ask you to hear episode 66 where i um express my opposition to nrc and for those of you who don't have the patience to go back and listen or have forgotten what i said last time i mean my principal opposition to the nrc has always been because of the infeasibility of it all um you, you can you know you can say the i'm opposing it on the point of humanity but if humanity sounds too much virtue signaling i would just say the feasibility of it you just cannot um you cannot take people who have been in the country for decades and throw them out um where first of all you know nobody can accept them bangladesh has accepted only four refugees that they have come from bangladesh so where are you going to I mean where are they going to go and i i've said that if you if you implement a national nrc uh what you're going to have is you're you're ultimately going to have people fighting on the streets that when you come for like what is going to happen how are you going to forcibly take people out there obviously will be violence i mean that this is the last recourse i mean violence happens when you leave people no other option when there is when you know people are normally not violent because they have something to lose they don't want to go to jail they don't want to go and face the courts but when you you know basically dragging them out from their homes and sending them to prison camps after they have been here for decades i mean it's it's there is going to be violence there is there is there are no two ways about it so my it in in that uh, in that episode i'd argued uh, from this perspective so this time i'm going to argue from a slightly different perspective it's 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 kind of has a intersection with uh, what i said but it's slightly different so for me th- there's another reason to uh, oppose the nrc and the reason to oppose the nrc is because forget forget the fact i mean forget it for now forget this uh, the cab forget the forget the citizenship amendment bill and just consider the fact that if you have a uh, nrc implemented nationally or in states outside of assam see in assam it's a very special case in assam first of all it's court mandated second is that the state of assam i mean again that's another point is that the logic that's given is that outsiders and by the way this includes this has always included legitimate uh, citizens of india who are bengalis um that they have gone and they have uh, commandeered the local population i saw today uh, somebody from tripura uh, saying that you know is it possible for uh, gurkha to be a chief minister of bengal no it's not possible he's right that's why i i support gurkha land i think that there is no reason why you know that part should be part of bengal precisely for that reason and second he says but there have been so many bengalis who have been the chief minister of tripura i mean i think other than one person everybody has been like and 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 you know how why is that so the resentment there their immigration is a very very hot button it is the most important issue for assam and for those places and it comes from 
um, and whether it is justifiable or not is another is, is another issue. That it comes from uh, the fear that uh, that they are being rendered as as they're not getting their share of the pie, they're not getting the chance to rule, and that outsiders have basically, and then of course there's democracy kicks in, there's so many outsiders that they can basically keep on voting their own people to power, and then there's nothing that they can do. So it comes from, I think, an, you know, a, a natural fear of, it's, it's a very natural xenophobia, and, and the left liberal clan has always like said, you know, xenophobia is terrible, xenophobia is terrible, unless it's this. Unless you can couch it as a, as a preservation of indigenous culture, then it's perfectly fine. So if it happens in Maharashtra, you know, it, it's, it's xenophobia, um, you know, against, against Biharis and Uttar Pradesh, you know, if, if the local Marathis do it. But if it's done in Assam, it's, it's okay because it's, it's, it's really the local culture which is, which is being, you know, overrun uh, by, by other people. So, so there is, and, and of course, if they don't accept that, then of course the real reason is, of course, Kashmir where this is the point that they don't want, they want to, want to say that this one state has the absolute right to preserve itself in its pristine, you know, it's, it's pristine Islamo-theocratic in, in the, that culture, that it has absolute right to do so, that somehow that is a legitimate state. And it, it's very difficult to argue that, given that the exact same people say that secularism and plurality should be the model for everybody else. So again, there is this monstrous hypocrisy that goes in. And again, I don't want to get into it because I've gotten into it many times. So I want to keep those hot button issues as if there are not enough hot button issues going around, you know, keep them aside for now. But just just see for NRC for what it is. For me, again, again, is, is a core of my belief is limited government. Um, I'm not I'm not a libertarian. I don't think that government that there is no role for government or the government role is minimal and that people have absolute freedoms. I do not believe that. Um, I intend to write a book someday about this. Um, I thought of calling it the Gunda liberal once, but uh, essentially trying to trying to more formally articulate what I believe in uh, based on what I understand about social theory. But that's, that's, that's for a book. It's very difficult to express it verbally without a script and I don't do this from a script, but um, coming back to, coming back to my like minimum, minimum gov, what was it? Minimum government, maximum minimum government, minimum government, government, maximum governance. That for me is, that for me is like, like the tip tip barsapani of you know, <laughs> politics. You know, when somebody says that I'm immediately, I'm there. Okay. Man, In I'm India, there. especially. So, in India. So that to me, and this NRC is an absolute contravention of that. Because what the NRC does, forget if you're Hindu, forget if you're Muslim, forget what you've done. The NRC is, you will have to show documents. You have to go somewhere, you have to show documents. And what documents? Nobody knows. If you knew that you were going to need those documents, maybe you would have collected the documents at some point of time. Nobody knows. So imagine yourself an Indian citizen in India at this point of time. And this is exactly what, why I think this is such a wrong thing for the BJP to have done. BJP is accusing the opposition of fear mongering and they are, that's the reason. I mean, they're supposed to, that's, that's why they're opposition, but it's very easy to do fear mongering on something like this. Because for everyone, the reason why so many people are protesting is because 
because people it's not a question of whether they're liberal or they're fibular or they're bhakt it, it doesn't matter it is the it's this it's this mortal fear of death by bureaucracy that somebody in and the stakes of this are so high that what if i don't have the documents and nobody knows what those documents are going to be that are going to be asked for nobody knows that so as a matter of fact people don't even know if there's going to be an nrc because amit shah has been repeatedly saying that there's going to be an nrc there's going to be an nrc chronology ko samjhiye there's going to be an nrc his guspetia termites he's used this you know he's used this multiple times and now prime minister says there's no nrc there's no plans for a national nrc so at the very beginning right straight off you know that the what kind of confidence will you have in the government when number 1 and number 2 don't agree publicly on whether there's an nrc and forget that now this will this confusion will percolate down there is not even a uniform voice coming from the government as to will there be an nrc or not and after even if there is and everybody knows that look if i have the good thing there is not going to be an nrc and there is the bad thing that there is going to be an nrc the government will obviously go for the bad thing this is the faith that people have in all governments this is not a bjp congress thing at all so the fear that people have is that they are going to be asked to do something that they are not prepared to do and even if even if the process is in the very unlikely scenario that the process is you know rock solid with absolutely hard criteria there is no subjectivity you not weigh whether you're a citizen or not does not depend on some babu's whims which the moment you say whims people in government people who have dealt with the government for decades know that there is now becomes bribery comes in you know this you know there's, there's so many other things that comes in when you're when you're at the mercy of some government official and th- there's always going to be some wriggle room every nothing is foolproof there is never really you know you're either part of this set or not part of this set there's always this middle ground you don't know who you're going to get so there is this apprehension then this is fear from the people of the government and this this is something fundamental to democracy this is when democracy really you know i i believe this is a danger to democracy when people start fearing the government fearing the government because the government is coming for something and it again it is not a hindu muslim issue everybody if there's an nrc then by definition everybody will have to show their papers so what happens is and for me the way i look at it is that when the government imposes a burden like you like this on you they're basically stealing your time and stealing your time is when time is equal to money it is stealing money it is a form of taxation when the government imposes this level of a burden on you it is an effect taxing now the government has done this this government has done this before they did it for demonetization right but at least for demonetization there was an overarching narrative now you could of course uh, you could not you could not buy the narrative but there was a fairly good narrative that sure you are suffering but the rich and by extension the corrupt are suffering more right so there was that that okay i'm suffering i am being taxed i'm actually losing my money i'm standing in lines i'm not being able to go to work but at least somebody else is going to suffer more that the government is going to weed out corruption now again whether this was true whether there was ever, ever going to happen that's another thing but at least there was a comforting ice cream like thing that the government was giving you 
which made your pain you know like a little bit of an anesthesia like before the it's not it's not like you're fully unaware of what's going on but it's like that little thing with the brush that the doctor puts on your gums before taking out that's like the minimal anesthesia it was at least like that for aadhar it was again there was a story was that sure you were going to be inconvenienced again it was nothing close to demonetization i would say but you know there was some you, know, you had to go there you had to get it done it's okay but again at least for many people it was that this is inevitable you know when you're coming into a digital economy when you're coming into a modern economy every every citizen of the country needs a unique identifying number i mean the us has it all places have it if you don't have it then you're not going to have something like financial accountability you cannot be traced you cannot be traced through the financial system if you're going to be receiving government benefits you know we need to know who it's going to and we need to make sure that it's going to you once and you're not coming back under a different name so there was a larger national objective of reducing fraud of you know coming to you know of of us converging to a digital economy and yes and people are not people are not crazy i mean they know that any kind of advancement comes with some inconvenience with some kind of tax and so they would you could understand that oh, of course there would be some people who would be against it but overall people might grudge people might not like it but they would still do it and they would not and there would not be a lot of upheaval over it for gst again there's a lot of opposition to gst but at least there's an overarching there's things that look man we need gst for more efficient tax collection you know to cut down on corruption and again there is this thing that people think okay i am having to fill out all these forms but at least other people who were defrauding the government are possibly suffering even more so again there was this what people like to call negative solidarity um there was this this angle playing in there but with immigration why the question is why because you see here in 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 india immigration is not a hot button topic it has never been a hot button topic mandir masjid yes has been a hot button topic corruption has been a hot button topic elections have been won and lost on these issues it has won and lost on reservations on jobs but never on immigration so what is the end goal why should i have to dig up my granddad's birth certificate what am i trying to achieve i don't think people are articulating it in this way but this is what's going on in their mind is that why should we have to do this now there are places like assam where this is a political issue immigration is a political issue and it has been for decades in those places yes it makes sense in a way it makes political sense but in a place like bengal you know immigration is a very marginal issue i mean people do grumble about our bangladeshi migrants coming and our marwaris coming in but it's 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 if you if you ask people to rank you know in terms of their top 10 pet peeves it won't make the list you know mamata banerjee's poetry might make it at number 9 but immigration won't make it anywhere so it just this is not something this is the end goal of and there is no clearly articulated end goal so this is another big point so what happens after nrc and what happens after you identify a million people out of which perhaps 40% are illegal and 60% are people who just don't have documents what are you going to do with them are you going to put them into detention camps who's going to pay for that you know who is going to pay for that and what is going to happen in those detention camps you know out of all the 
all the illegal immigrants that have been identified in the Assam exercise, Bangladesh has accepted only four, four of them. So, so where are the rest? And you wouldn't want to believe what, what the rest are going through. There have been multiple reports of you know, people in detention camps, basically in prison for 10 years for essentially not a crime. Okay, it's, it was not a crime when they came in. It was never explained to them that it was a crime. And as I said in the episode number 66, given the kind of history that we have had, that there was, that we kind of redrew the boundaries and the boundaries have continuously, are being continuously redrawn through wars. And it, it, this is not in US-Mexico thing that the, that the boundary has been fixed for decades and centuries. This is not the case over here. In India, we haven't had that kind of history, that borders haven't been holy, that people don't cross borders. You know, the borders are there, but they're, but they're secondary to religion. They're secondary to language. People don't take the border as like a Lakshman Rekha. That has never been the case. It's not been a part of our culture at all. It is not part of sub- subcontinental culture. This is a culture which has been imported, I would say, in the last few years, from specifically from the U.S., and now it's kind of seeped into Europe also. I mean, Europe has fought wars on borders, like really on borders. We've not, we've fought wars on religion. See, our borders are drawn based on what, what God you worship. It's not a line in the sand. So when you are trying to, on one hand, secularize everything, you know, you're saying, okay, and, and, and it's, it's true that it's true that Muslims are leading, you know, it, Comes back to that, comes back to the slogan, and <laughs> comes back to that Fez's poem, which totally I didn't understand. I mean, that was so silly that controversy of calling that poem anti-Hindu. When you know, if, if you have any idea of this, of the context in which, but let's keep that for aside for now. Those are diversions that 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 the the outrage of the day. But what is the government's end game nobody knows and 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 the fact is the government hasn't done anything to make people believe that it has any idea of what it's doing first of all it doesn't even agree if there is going to be an nrc then the government has um, there was a, somehow I saw a circular that apparently some anonymous person in the ministry on uh, mha has circulated that passports um, the passport will not be considered to be uh, est- Establishing and again, there's been no official circular on this, and in a way, it's it's right. A passport does not technically, you know, if, if you really want to get down to the nitty gritty, passport is that establishes your citizenship for travel. It is a rest, believe it or not, it is a very restricted. So, for instance, in the U.S., um, the document that actually establishes your citizenship is your birth certificate if you were born in the country or your naturalization certificate inside the U.S. The U.S. passport essentially counts once you step outside of the U.S. So again, is it logical? Of course not. Nothing about this is logical, but it's just bureaucracy. And that's exactly what people are afraid of. They're afraid of these you know, bits of anonymous news that's coming. Some are coming from WhatsApp and some is coming from NDTV and some is coming from Timestar. And somebody's saying, no, 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 no. Some government spokesperson says, no, nothing like this is going to happen, man. We're going to be very, very informal about this. You know, we, you know we'd be very reasonable about this. And expecting nobody in the world expects any government to be reasonable 
Okay, bureaucrats by definition are not supposed to be reasonable. So when the government comes and says we'll be reasonable, nobody trusts them that they're going to be reasonable. And the way the government has dealt with the whole NRC thing doesn't create any kind of confidence that that even the different wings of the government, which is in general a much monolithic government because there is no coalition partners per se, even something as monolithic as the BJP with such a big majority, even they cannot agree. Even the top two guys have said different things on NRC. And so obviously, given the past experience of demonetization, and I have a personal experience of demonetization when I came in, I mean, I lost, you know, the amount of money that I had over here, which I was legally allowed, I could not exchange it. Because when I was going to India with the Indian rupees that I had, um, just before that, there was a circular that when you come in, if you're if you are residing outside India, and if you have the demonetized notes, you show it to you, you there will be a paperwork which you will declare while you're coming in. And then they will say that, yes, this person had these demonetized currency. And then you can go to the bank and change it. Except that we took the, I mean, when we were going, we went and told the guy and they said, we ha- don't have any circular. We're not aware of what you're talking about. And they refused to do it. So we lost that money. Uh, don't get me started. So, I have a draw full of about 5,000 rupees right now. And each time I look at it, I, I don't have the heart to throw it out. So it's, it's still there. So, so, so this, this, the thing is, this is, this is the, this is the level at which the, the this is the track record of this government. And again, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say this is a track record of this government per se. This is a track record of the Indian government. If it was Congress, it wouldn't have been any different. This is the track record of Indian governments in general. But that's the problem. I mean, if the Indian government keeps on every six months coming up with these schemes, and as I said, demonetization, at least at least you could convince yourself that there was a greater good going on. That is, that is impossible to convince anyone outside Assam or outside a few districts, perhaps in Bengal, that there is any greater good that can come out of this. Because everybody knows that, that there are two things which are going to happen if there's an RC. Everybody is going to have to show documents. Most people are not going to have their documents. Even with CAA, if you want, if, let's, say, let, let's say that, and, I, and as I had said before, I, I have a problem with, you know, when you use, C, when you use you know, CAB with, uh, with NRC. Even for a Hindu to establish that he came from Bangladesh, okay, this is an option only open to basically people in Bengal. You know, if if I show, if I tell you that I'm my name is Banerjee, and you know, I can show some kind of some kind of you know, if even though I talk with a Bengal accent, which is the way Bang, you know, you from Bangladesh, you know, you can at least convince someone that look, man, I, it's very obvious that this guy came from Bangladesh, even if I don't have. But again, this is a high bar. This is not going to. This is not going to give anybody in any other part of the, in the country any any advantage. So there's going to be very few people who are going to be able to take advantage of this practically. So everybody knows. I mean, Hindus, Muslims, everybody really knows that they're all basically under the pump at this point of time. If NRC is imposed, they will have to fish out documents, and they're given the again the track record of the government. There will be no uniformity. It'll, possibly be dependent entirely on the whims of the person who's deciding. And there is, and I think there, I read somewhere that the government said, oh, there will be, we'll have people, we'll, it's not just going to be documents, you can come up with people who can then 
attest to. And this is just, you know, when you just, you hear this, you know, this is like the road to and disaster. And you know, there's going to be a business of this, of touts. There's going to be a business of people who are going to say whatever you want them to say if you, you know, cross their palms with silver. And there's always going to be politics is going to be part of it. So you can, you can just see it. You can just, just see that you're walking into as if this country hasn't had enough bureaucracy, as if this country doesn't ask its citizens to do enough in terms of forms, in terms of it's on top of this, this. And for again, the question is for what, what will happen to the people who you, when you identify as Kuspetias? What will you do with them? Are you going to keep them here on tax dollars, tax rupees? What are you going to do with them? And there is, again, as I said, the way, the feeling, the thumos, if you remember the, 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 the term from Plato, that feeling of community, that feeling of community pride, it works in India on religious lines, on caste lines. It works even on financial status lines. But it doesn't work really on a basis of whether you were a legal citizen of India or an illegal citizen of India. It doesn't work like that. In the US, again, the, as somebody said that Trump isn't really against illegal immigrants. He's against illegal Hispanic immigrants. He's perfectly fine if an Irish guy is illegal. So that is, again, you know, transposing Thumos or the community on top of it. So that's why this whole notion of legality, legality is itself a non-issue. It's only when you put identity on top of it that it, it that you can hope to get some votes. And the problem with the problem, and then BJP is perfectly fine and it totally understands that. I think every political party in India understands that. But the problem is that the way this question has now been framed, everybody in, in a way, essence, this policy and the way it's been rolled out, on the one hand, it hasn't been rolled out. It has this unique ability to make everybody in this country feel like a minority. It makes everybody in this country feel like we have to show something to a government who has absolute power over our lives. And again, think of what you're going to lose with demonetization. I know that I'm this, the maximum I'm going to lose is the amount of money I have in cash. With this, you have the, the risk is you're going to lose your freedom. You're going to lose your home. You're going to lose your job. So this is what you stand to lose. So there is no, no good way out of this. And this is, I think, even a more compelling argument as to why I oppose the NRC. And this is not a question of morality. It's not, I mean, it's not a question of, you know, you're making distinctions. You're, you know, this is, you know, ripping apart the secular fabric of the country. You know, those things that some of it is not even true. But the fact is, I believe that the government, uh, uh, this is not what we want government for. It's not a question of BGP or Congress government. We do not want government to do more government unless we as a country are convinced. And it doesn't take us much. You know, we're, we're pretty, we're not skeptics. You know, tell us some friggin' story and we will believe it. It doesn't have to be a great story. But tell us some some lodi, some fairy tale. But there is no fairy tale here. There is absolutely none. Nobody can spin a spin a tale in which there can be any good thing that comes out of this, except of at the best, you go to a place and you present paperwork and you come back and you feel relieved. Okay, I was able to prove that I was an Indian citizen. 
that's why I think NRC is a terrible, terrible, forget the morality of it, a terrible political idea. It is, if this is not going to get the BJP votes, I know any political party in a democratic system like India, it's all about what will get us votes. This is for me, an absolute vote loser, even for BJP's core constituents, because there's a line, right? The BJP has been pushing it. They've been pushing it with these, you know, these national initiatives. And this is this is so exactly what was perhaps the worst part of Congress. You know, this this whole national socialist, you know, this this whole national socialist temper. And this is exactly what we're coming with. This, you know, big government, government asking you for papers, government with no notion of what papers they want to ask you, just basically asking you for papers. No cohesive strategy on the part of government. People in government at the highest level not agreeing with each other. This is the nightmare. This is the dystopia of big government, which again brings me back to minimum government, maximum governance. This is exactly turned that sentence around. It is now maximum, you know, maximum government, absolutely zero governance. Before you move on, I mean, I just wanted to ask you also about uh, were you following this news where uh, BJP has launched this? uh, no, a phone number where you can give a missed call to show your support for the NRC and the absolutely, I don't know, bizarre slash genius ways in which it's been uh, promoted by the IT cell. Yeah, yeah I saw that. I, 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 I tweeted about that. And again, this is this is again a sign that a government has known national. Forget you know people putting Sunny Leone's number and you know saying Sunny Leone will be talking and all of that shit. But even before that, you know this 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 very this very Kejriwalian move of asking people or showing support. I mean, what is this? Is this the final of Indian Idol? What is this? I mean, how can the, how can anybody have a faith? How can people that have faith that these guys will actually be able to winnow out the Guspetias when they, when they're opening gambit is send in your SMS, send in missed calls. I mean, are we, is this now governance like, the finals of Indian Idol. I mean, that's all I can think of. I mean, where are we now? I mean, forget this. Forget the Sunny Leone and I'm a and I'm a lonely girl and I want to talk to you. Forget all of that stuff. I mean, even taking it a step back. I mean, is this the way that we are going to be governing in 2020? I mean, if if the BJP really feels that this is something which they have the mandate to do, then just do it. Now you're showing not only don't not only I mean. The BJP is now openly vacillating. I mean, this is, again, how can you trust a government? I mean, again, in a way, you can say the BJP is listening to people. But if it listens to people, then it should just ditch the NRC. I mean, this is a wrong move. Nothing bad has happened yet much. So, in, but can the BJP, but a BJP should either, basically, with the Prime Minister saying there is no plans for NRC, BJP should just drop it. Should drop it, never mention this again. And that would be enough show that the BJP realized that no, this is not the right thing at this point of time. But no, the BJP will then have, they will do that, but then they will come back and they'll say, you know, show your support by doing this. Because unfortunately, people here can't let things go because the people think it's personal. Because they become so invested in it, even at the highest levels of government, that they just cannot let it go. You know, the pragmatic thing for BJP, if I was advising BJP on his political strategy, I would say, just friggin' let it go, man. You know, Prime Minister's come out, he said that 
there will be no nrc there's no plans for nrc just drop it just don't mention it don't ask people to say to call us number to show their support show their support for what we're done ca has been uh, you know ca has become cab we have done it you know just message it that there is no connection between this and nrc and forget what amit shah said forget what he said repeatedly about that they are exactly that their chronology samjhiye that they are actually two sides of the same coin let's not even talk about it there will be there are no plans don't say there will be no nrc because that might be too much of a step as there is no immediate plans of any nrc all of this is a conspiracy of congress whatever you say it and you move on this is what i'm worried about is that they they cannot in they cannot put together a cohesive strategy that spans 48 hours that is that is that is that is a that is not so much a government thing but that's a more political message i think and i don't know who is driving bjp's political strategy in this case okay so moving on to the next uh, story that i wanted to cover which was uh, the which was uh, the developing situation in iran uh, somebody raised this question i don't know why american states iraq and the quality iran uh, i have no idea but but again for those of you who 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 might not who might not be you know might be puzzled as to what's 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 really going on over there you know the brief primer on um on on the whole uh iran thing so for those of you who don't know the history of uh, of the region i mean it, it would take you know episodes to go over the history of the region but let's focus today on iran because that's really where the center of political activity has now shifted to from uh you know from palestine and israel to iran so the iranians who are persians and not arabs they have they have been a very advanced civilization you know at a time when there was you know saudi arabia was basically a desert land they've you know that's that's mesopotamia right iran is is, is mesopotamia it's a very ancient culture they've always been you know in that region one of them egypt on one side and iran again mesopotamia on the other they have kind of been the cradles of civilization they've made amazing achievements they have a uh, you know, great contribution to the advancement of you know human civilization and culture so this is a but because they are shias the iranians have always felt that the muslim world has not treated them with with the respect and deference that they deserve is not just respect shias in shias in shias form minorities um in uh, in different countries in the middle east and shias in general for reasons too deep to go into haven't been successful enough to seize political power even in places where there are significant majorities like in iraq so the thing about saddam hussein was he was a sunni muslim ruling mostly a majority shiite country and that's kind of been the fate of shias in the 19th and 20th century except that everything changed um and and that was there was there's always been of course you know 
a desire for a Shia revival. And after World War II, there was there was an attempt. There was a person called Mossadegh who who basically for the first person who kind of tried to lead a Shia revival uh, by by basically taking over the power in Iran. But the US, basically the CIA basically did a coup against him and basically deposed him. And they had the Shah of Iran, who was really the US puppet. So the Shah of Iran was essentially supported by the US. He was a great friend of the US. Um, The Shah believed that by aligning itself very solidly with the West, it could, Iran could occupy, you know, Shiites could occupy the space that he believed they should, that that it was impossible for them to go to Sunnis and expect respect. The much better thing was to go and ally with, you know, Westerners. That that is the way that they would be able to establish their power and hegemony in the region. And then everything changed with the Iranian revolution and the coming of coming to power of the Ayatollah Khomeini. So the, so the thing was that with Ayatollah Khomeini coming to power, um, bizarrely, the, the fact that a class of clerics overthrew a king, the guys who were shit scared of this was the house of Saud in Saudi Arabia, because they could see it coming, right? What had happened there of, the clerical class, the clerical class overthrowing the king. There were similar conditions in Saudi Arabia. So the Saudi Arabia, the House of Saud was actually sitting on a, a militant uh, Islamic cleric class. There were Sunnis, though, essentially the forebearers of the ISIS and you know that kind of ra- you know guys who were so radical that even the Saudis called them radical. That kind of guys. So they were already dealing with them. And what happened with in Iran was their worst nightmare had come true. And the thing about many things in this world is that once people see that something is possible, it then starts happening. So what the, what the Saudis did, that they, they became the sworn enemies of, of the Shia. They were always were the sworn enemies of the Shias. But then once the Ayatollah took, took control, what the Saudis did was that they basically struck an agreement with Saddam Hussein in Iraq to basically attack Iran and be the proxy for the Saudis. And that's how essentially the Iran-Iraq war started. After some time, Saddam was obviously mismanaged Saudi money um, because he was corrupt and he was crazy and he was evil. And uh, they started losing to Iran. This was something which they did not, they thought that uh, they, they, they kind of almost had this, that, you know, Shiites, if you, if you push them, they'll all roll over and fall. You know. But this is, this is a different kind of Iran. So under Ayatollah, they fought back. They fought back. I mean, they, they didn't win the war, but they, but against a you know, much better armed uh, Sunni military under Saddam, they, they, they basically drew blood. It was a stalemate. And that's when the Saudis realizing that there was no way out of this war, they basically cut Saddam's funding. They stopped funding it. And when Saddam saw that the money had stopped, he turned on the Saudis and he attacked Kuwait. 
He said, okay, you owe me money. If you don't pay me money, I will go and occupy your oil fields and then get the money. So that's when the Iraq war started. So it was a war. You know, why, did, why did he go and attack? Why did a Sunni attack a Sunni? This was the reason why he attacked the Saudis. Again, the, the fun part of it was that when this happened, Osama bin Laden went and offered his help to the Saudis to you know, battle Saddam Hussein. Which is why, you know, when people later said the Saddam and Osama were working together for 9-11, that was how funny it was because they were mortal enemies. And uh, the Saudis basically told uh, Osama bin Laden to, you know, F off because they were obviously not going to leave the security of their oil fields to Osama bin Laden and when the option was the U.S. So they went to the U.S. Because Osama bin Laden's main thing was he did not want like infidel, infidel soldiers on Holy Land. So he said, that's why I'll do it. But they said, no, we believe the U.S. more than you do. You know, we don't believe, we don't trust you. We trust the U.S. They'll do a much better job. So they went to the U.S. Saddam was, a, see, Saddam was a megalomaniac. He was, so Saddam was, a, uh, he, so he was a member of something called the Ba'ath Party. So the Ba'ath Party was, again, I'm not, I, because of shortage of time, I'm not going to go to that level of detail, but the Ba'ath Party was essentially started off as a secular Arabic national organization. So the Ba'ath Party was in multiple places. Um, the ruling party of Syria is still Ba'ath. So even though they kind of are in bed with the, the, the Islamic radicals, but they're not really Islamic radicals. They are, again, in that, in that area, they're actually the leftists, believe it or not. They're the secular guys. Unbelievably, they are, you know, believably, but they are. So the Ba'ath Party, of which Saddam was a member of, was, you know, the, because uh, the Iraqis had women members in the military. So this was, again, unheard of. You wouldn't see that in Saudi Arabia. They can't, <laughs> only recently they were even allowed to drive. So it was a different culture. So the, there was fundamentally a different kind of culture that, that was there in Syria, that was there in uh, Iraq. And and Saddam was, believe it or not, in that region, he was the most liberal. And so he attacked them, of course, and everybody knows what happened after that. But it comes to the point that Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein were, put it mildly, were never friends. Because precisely because of that, that difference that Osama didn't like approve of Saddam's liberaliz liberalism. I mean, to him, Saddam is a secular. So, again, this is this is that region. So you have to understand that everything is violently right shifted in the spectrum over there. Uh, so, so, so this is what happened with. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I kind of lost my uh, train of thought here. But the, the, the oh, coming back to the fact. So the, the Iranians have. So after the Iraqis. So one thing was that once. Saddam, even after the first uh, Iraq war, when Saddam's power was vastly curtailed, this was the time when I Iran started um, under the Ayatollah, started consolidating itself. And they started making forays into places where they had never gone before. So what they wanted to do was they wanted to take over the leadership of the defining struggle that defined the Muslim world. And again, when they mean Muslim world, they don't mean us in, in India, Pakistan. They don't even think of us as Muslims. I mean, if you force us, they, when they th think, they think, you know, Palestine and that place. 
So for them, what they started doing was they started essentially taking over Sunni turf because they had money, they had oil and they had technology. They started taking over turf. So for instance, Hezbollah is Iranian funded. When the Hezbollah, you know, the mid 2000s, when they attacked Israel, some of the most strongest condemnation came from Hamas. You would think why? Because the Hamas are Sunni and they were, if there's one thing they hate more than Israel, it's Shias coming and taking over their struggle and being the big boss. So that's why they were against. And and so, which brings me to who exactly Major General Qasim Soleimani was. So Major General Qasim Soleimani was that guy. He was the he was one of the people who led the Shia, um, let's say the Shia expansionist initiative of basically the Shias introducing themselves into classic Arabic and Sunni conflicts, which is why the people who hated him the most were the Saudis, because this this guy was their very nightmare, and he was he was doing a good job of it too. So he was the person who kind of led, led the Shia revolt. And he was the guy who was basically behind the lines, who was financing the Shia revolt in Iraq after, uh, after the U.S. came in. Remember, when the U.S. first invaded Iraq, some of the most pro-U.S. propaganda came at that point of time from Iran because they saw this as a heaven-sent opportunity that the U.S. were usurping the guy, the Sunni guy there. And that would enable them to extend their influence into into Iraq and basically take over Iraq, which is exactly what they have been doing. I read an incident uh, that when this was going on, somebody in the State Department was trying to explain to Senator John McCain what could happen. And John McCain didn't know the difference between a Shia and a Sunni. He said they were all Muslims. And this, uh, this thing was saying that the guys who actually put in U.S. who thought that they were advancing U.S. strategic interests had absolutely zero idea as to what that region was. And for them, in their myopic vision, they were just Muslims. They, they didn't see them. They didn't see any kind of history or any kind of like that. that it's not like that. So this brings me to the point as to, you know, what are the significance of this is, is that for me, at least my hypothesis is that this is a, you know, there are many things would dictate Trump, but the, one of the biggest things that dictate Trump is the inordinate influence that Saudis have over Trump. You know, the, 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 the real criminality in Trump isn't the, the Russian hold over Trump, which might or might not be, but the very obvious Saudi hold over Trump because of Trump's extensive business interests in Saudi Arabia. And also because the Saudis are a huge huge, huge customer of the U.S. military industry, which is also the biggest supporter of the Republican Party. So paradoxically, the most ultra-right conservative Christian, that, that kind of politics, finds you know, its greatest support from the ultra-right Islamic expansionist uh, politics. I mean, they, they kind of align. So in this case, the, you know, the killing of Major General Qasim Soleimani is the guys who benefit the most in any kind of killing. The question that the police ask is who benefits the most? It's Saudi Arabia. Because Soleimani wasn't, I mean, again, yeah, sure, he was attacking the US embassy in 
embassy in Iraq. It was not a it was just he wants to get rid of the U.S. But his scope is that region. Unlike Osama bin Laden, his scope isn't U.S. He is he was never focused in taking the war to U.S. All he wants is the U.S. to get out of the place and for them to take over the place. That's all that he wants. And he's been doing a fairly good job of it. So he's kind of been that. So the easiest way of looking at him is he's like the head of the CIA. So he extends the influence of Iran beyond its borders. It's actually the same thing that the U.S. has done in South South America. He's basically trying to do it in that region, which is his sphere of influence. What they really care about, they don't really care about any other place. So. When you say what did Major General Kasi was he a good man? Of course not. He was not a good man. He was he, he was obviously the leader of the he was not a leader per se, but he was financing the insurgency. He was but he also have to understand that in the Middle East there is there is no good there is no good person there. It's always about the lesser of evils. I mean Saddam, yes, evil, but the people he was basically subjugating were even more evil than him. Assad is evil. but the people he is being evil towards the isis so again it's it's very difficult to make a moral judgment on this guy he's gassing his people and this guy there you know isis so it's very difficult you know it's very difficult to even morally say you know this guy is better than this guy but honestly it it, it is true in in a bizarre way that that if this guy is a 9 this guy is 11 and the she definitely they've started a war with iran the, the war with iran but you know it you know this, this this how will the war play out nobody really knows and that's that's the concerning part of it because with major general kasim sulemani of course he's against us interests but so so far the us strategy has been not to engage with state actors the us has always had a policy that they only go after non state actors like osama bin laden that state actors even when they know that these state actors are directly funding um the non state actors they don't go after directly they do not go and try to kill the state actors they try to isolate them in some other way and another thing which the us has not done so long is it hasn't got into direct conflicts with countries which they know have significant capability to strike back the only countries where us went in declaring war were afghanistan whose strongest weapon is rashid khan and like th- these countries just couldn't defend themselves and iraq which had been enervated after decades and decades of sanctions it was only those countries that us put their boots on ground and then and libya in places which had which had in any case defeated not a country like iran they won't even take on north korea so iran is a different ball game you know the us has never and as i said iran has done small things to kind of see how far it can go it has been like pushing but that's 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 the part of their game that's part of kasim sulemani's game it is to keep the us involved in small things let's shoot down a drone okay let's do this let's do that let's send a signal again this is this is this is a move of a chess pieces on a game this this is just just the way geopolitics works but what the us has done and i 
what many people are now saying, and again, I don't have that insight to know, is that they haven't thought through what they just did. Saudi is ecstatic because this is guy has been a thorn in their flesh for decades now. But the US, what, what did they do and what did they gain out of it? Again, this is not a question of morality. People like to think that you know, foreign policy isn't like a dishun dishun game between the goodies and the baddies, right? Everybody is a baddie in some sense of the term. It is the action you take versus what you hope to achieve out of it. And it's not clear that just by what, what they did, that they, what did they achieve out of this? And the prospect of how Iran will retaliate. And again, Iran does have the capability to retaliate. It is not Iraq. It is not Afghanistan. One of the big things that people are afraid of is cyber war. Because the, after Stuxnet, which, which was a, you know, you know, malware, which was made specifically to target certain centrifuges to, you know, bring back the Iranian nuclear program. Again, the fact is, even in terms of optics, if you target somebody's nuclear plant, it still isn't an act of war. But if you actually target a state actor, like somebody who holds an official position, it is considered an act of war. So, while Stuxnet, and you could never prove that the U.S. did it, though it was fairly obvious that the U.S. and Israelis you know, worked together to do it. But that was, you know, that was a clever way of doing things. The, 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 the terrible way of doing things would be to send you know, a bomb on the, on the nuclear facility. That would be an act of war. But this was not per se an act of war. So sometimes what happens is even nations don't want to go to war. They actually prefer you to do something like this rather than something which even they, because of their public pressure, then will have to go to war at that point of time. Even the people who don't want war will at that point have to say, yeah, sure. I mean, there's nothing we can do at this point of time. Our hands are tied. We have to. Otherwise, we look like wimps in front of our citizens. So my main concern is that has the U.S. thought through what is going to happen after this? And I think the specter of cyber war is, is major. This is the first war which could technically become, and I don't want to sound particularly alarmist, but this, this is something which could escalate to a full-blown cyber war because Iran has definite cyber capabilities. Unlike in North Korea has cyber capabilities. Iran has cyber capabilities. Iraq didn't have any. Afghanistan didn't have any. So they have cultivated this for a long time. And I don't know how, or I don't know what the strategy for the U.S. is to the inevitable response that will happen. Now, if the Iranians keep on doing, which is, I think, I think what Trump and his advisors kind of gam- are gambling in on is that nothing will happen, that the Iranians will, in any case, they're doing their worst. They're poking different places. He is dead. Somebody else, somebody else, it'll take some time for him to ramp up to you know, go and read the old uh, PowerPoint documents and look at SharePoint. It will take him some time to come up to speed. So they are basically counting on that. But the fact is that killing a person actually doesn't really help because there will always be another person who will come in and take his place. It only makes sense when it's somebody symbolic like Osama bin Laden, who's like the Ronald McDonald of terrorism. Like he's in the universe. You see him, you automatically know it's McDonald's. So you see him, you know it's Al-Qaeda. So and, and unless you are that kind of a guy, 
is universally reviled like um you know a, a, a typical a, a villain also in popular culture that guy you can definitely kill you can kill the head of isis i don't think anybody would consider that as an act of war because of how he has damned himself but with major general kasim sulemani there is no there is no we hate major general kasim sulemani nobody even knew who he was he's at the worst he's just you know that's like the head of the cia for for iraq uh, for, for for iran and and that's the that's the level of his malignancy you know, of course if you think iran is evil he's evil but he's still a state actor he still has the stars on his you know his stars on his uniform and again i'm not sure what the us is trying to accomplish by this and it's, it's fine for some social media bra- bravado and, you know, but but what what's the end game on this it comes back to even with the nrc what is the end game of this so i'll be curious and i'm and i just feel that the us in this case might have bitten more than it can chew it has never tried to chew it i mean chew it somebody at the level of iran iran's you know pretty strong they're not i mean they they're strong they're they have oil remember they have oil um they're strong they have a very strong scientific and i mean unlike saudis who've always had to buy stuff from other people the iranians have developed their own stuff themselves i mean they are we don't hear a lot of iran but if you even if you watch irani movies you know you'll see that this is a place which is totally confident in itself so this is not the kind of country that the us has attacked i mean this is not vietnam you know this is a kind of a enemy that is at the us's level again of course it does not have the kind of overwhelming scientific superiority the us basically can hit any place in the world with you know with, <laughs> with basically a nuclear device they have that ability to do it obviously iran does not have that ability what it does in iraq in 1981 when iran was much weaker discovered it that you know it's it's it's, it's a dangerous country to take on again there is no in 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 geopolitics is no good or bad guy here and iran actually one of the big contributions that iran had was iran was one of the guys who basically brought down isis because the isis's main enemy was believe it or not shias so the iran brought down isis that was why iran was uh, was basically uh, supporting assad because they were working to, together to bring down isis so it's the lesson of the middle east is that of course people are bad of course but you know when you bring down somebody like this it never is the case that a better person comes in it's always a worse person and that's if there's anything that the history of middle east has taught us it's that that you know replacing someone killing someone because never solves unless of course as i said unless it's a symbolic strike like osama bin laden makes perfectly sense, perfect sense al baghdadi makes perfect sense but general qasim sulemani isn't bin laden he isn't al baghdadi he doesn't have that record of you know that record of known evil that these people had so that's the podcast for today all right so that's our show for today there won't be an episode next week but uh, here some suggestions on what you can do to fill in the gap next week a you can take the time out to visit patreon.com/greatbong and you can pledge any amount that you are comfortable with 
number two, you can listen to some older episodes. Uh, I think uh, Arnab mentioned uh, the previous episode, especially because that acts like a continuum where we discussed uh, not the previous episode, the one the before. one before that. Yes, you're right. Yeah, the one called uh, the one about the NRC and uh, CAB. Uh, and three, you can subscribe and uh, listen to Bin John and WhatsApp Geeks and uh, fill up that gap. So uh, that's pretty much it for now. Until next time, take care.